Professor Andrew Geddes from the, the European Inst University Institute in Florence, a director of the Migration Policy Center. Hello, Andrew. Hi, Nando. Um, uh, Andrew has uh, recently completed an ERC, European Research Council Advanced Investigator uh, Grant on the Global governance and recently published a book with the university oxford university press uh, governing migration beyond the state and do, do you want to tell us something about the book yeah well thanks thanks for the invite it's great to be here and to talk with you so the book itself uh, well it's part of a bigger project i was lucky enough to get a a, a grant from european research council for a five-year project and what i wanted to focus on was what, what i would call the drivers of governance so we know quite a lot about the drivers of migration but we know less about how those people who are responsible for making or shaping policy understand migration. And so what the project did was look at four world regions, Europe, North America, South America, and Southeast Asia. And we spoke to around 400 people. And when I say we, it's because I had a great team of people working with me on this. And what we were interested in was how they made sense of international migration in its various forms. Uh, and how their understandings then shaped actions. And we were particularly interested in, well, as the title of the book says, governance beyond the state. So in those forms of organization, which might be bilateral, multilateral, particularly regional, we were interested particularly in regional, but also for global migration governance as well. The, the time when you were doing this research was what we can call an age of crisis for migration. You know, obviously there was the, the so-called refugee crisis in Europe, there was the, uh, Donald Trump and uh, building the wall. There was the the mobility the mobility out of Venezuela, for example, in South America. So a lot of people has been framed migration in terms of crisis. But what you do in the book, in a sense, is uh, challenges this uh, this idea of crisis, or in a sense, giving us a different spin on it. Uh, do you want to tell us something about it? Yeah. Uh, well, I suppose you're absolutely right that the book itself was framed by events labeled as crises. So in the United States, there was increasing child migration was labeled as a crisis. Obviously in Europe, the arrivals in 2015 labeled as a crisis for displacement from Venezuela. Also in Southeast Asia, the displacement of the Rohingya was labeled as a crisis. So all these crisis-like events, and what we assume is these crisis-like events are kind of points of decision that might instigate action around migration. That's certainly true because they focus attention absolutely play an important role in focusing the attention the public and of government and that focusing of attention can be particularly important if the issues become salient in politics and they begin to matter in political debate as important political topics but what i argue in the book is that actually underneath these crises are understandings of what, what i call the normality of migration and what i mean by that say we take europe as an example since the end of the Cold War, the, the development of European Union policies on migration and asylum has been driven by concern about large-scale migration to Europe. So whether justified or not, these concerns have played an important role in driving EU cooperation, in, in particular on border control, border security, measures to tackle irregular migration, and now measures to tackle asylum-seeking migration. And so what I argue in the book is this understandings of what is normal about migration that actually frame responses to crisis. So Europe is this long-standing concern about large-scale migration. Similar dynamics in North America too, but what I also show in South America is that different responses are possible. So when you look at responses to Venezuelan displacement, 
in South America, you see a rather different story, which is uh, obviously there, it, these raise difficult social and political issues, mass displacement, but the response in South America has been very different. So uh, what the book also shows is the different regions that, that well, can respond in different ways. So there's not some kind of template which uh, uh, informs governance beyond the state. When you talk about the migration governance, I mean, in a, way, in a very nice way in the introduction, you say that uh, the study of international migration is a, there are two options. Either you study international migration drivers uh, and consequences, or you study the consequences of migration governance, and this is what you set um, to do uh, in, in this book. But you also say that by studying migration governance, uh, you see how migration shock governance shape the drivers and the consequences of migration. What, what do you mean with it? The governance systems themselves play an enormously important role in, in shaping migration. So the decisions made by actors in governance systems across the world powerfully shape international migration. So how these actors, as I refer to them in the book, the people who make, shape or influence policy, understand migration can have enormously important consequences. But more than that, well, why does migration happen? Well, because economic systems change, political systems change, natural systems change, including climate. So how these factors also impact on governance systems and shape migration is also really important. So I think it's, it's crucial that we understand that governance systems themselves, through their operation and their effects, can shape international migration. It seems to me to be self-evident that that's the case and that we need to really understand the role that governance systems can play in in creating migration but also of course in organizing and classifying migrants mm. you know it, the, the 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 what the categories into which people are placed are not characteristics of individuals they're decisions made by governance systems and those are also effects of governance one of the things you point out uh, very clearly in the book is these are uh, the role of narratives and uh, and how do we establish a narrative? How do we tell the story of migration? What stories got told and, and why? I mean, you point out that sometimes uh, truth is not is nice, but not necessary. But what is important is plausibility. What do you mean? Well, I think that, uh, well, I begin the book, the very first sentence says that migration governance occurs in the shadow of uncertainty where facts, values and beliefs elide. And, and I think that's became more and more evident to me as I, I was doing the research itself that uh, what matters about migration are the kind of, the, in a way, the stories that are told about facts. Because most facts about international migration, actually, when you look into it, are contested. Uh, and so what, what really matters is the way that the facts themselves coincide with values and beliefs, and particularly, obviously, the values and beliefs of those who are the dominant actors in migration governance systems. So that's, you know, that, I think that was quite a, a fundamentally, what became more and more clear as we were doing the research was to, for us as researchers, to understand more about the, what we call the representations of migration that these, these well, these important actors in governance systems had. Uh, and, and narratives become important because, uh, you know, sort of controlling the narrative, having a kind of plausible story about migration can be incredibly powerful. So just to provide one example, in Europe, uh, but also in the United States, the idea of deterrence has become such an important component of policy. And, and, and I think it, for, the, for those who are making decisions, there's a plausibility to it, that somehow you have to make destination countries less attractive or, or take steps to try and 
discourage people from from migrating now in the minds of decision makers perhaps also in the minds of the public there's a plausibility to that as researchers we will probably say well that's not entirely accurate that's only a very might be a very narrow and perhaps misguided perception of what it is that motivates migrants but i would argue that in the united states and europe this idea of deterrence based on understanding of why people are migrating has become incredibly powerful and as i say in the book it's it's plausible but not necessarily accurate and that's why you know throughout the book I, I, what i what well, what i don't do in the book is uh try and assess whether people's views are accurate or not we did over 400 interviews what i'm looking for is how particular understandings acquire a kind of plausibility and then have effects i found one um, i mean it's an interesting point you made about you know the uh, the the knowledge about about the migration you know obviously there is uh, a lot of battle on the facts and uh, people tend to you know there is the fact fact checking has become sort of especially during the trump years has become mm -hmm. central of the narrative as well but one thing you also point out in the in the book is uh, is that sometimes also the expert or the researcher fall into the trap of basically saying oh the the policymaker don't know about this that's why they behave in that way in the sense almost as if you know the poly you talk about poly try to offer an understanding more complex understanding what does it mean policy failure well i i, we, I tried to do that because one of the things that became apparent as with my with the, my team we, we spoke to people was often the people working on these issues do have highly developed understandings of the issues they've been working on them for years if not decades they're often very highly qualified people but they perhaps they didn't share the ideas and worldviews of academic researchers like us when they looked at the issue perhaps they had different understandings of what as i said earlier was plausible what could be done what the what they understood the political realities to be uh, and and i think it goes to this point about policy failure because i think in uh you know, particularly for those who study migration, there's a tendency to look at the outcome of migration governance as in terms of failure. And there may be good reasons to do that. But at the same time, I think we should bear in mind that some of the things that we might see as failures in the eyes of some people might actually be success. So if we were to look at reductions in numbers of people moving, uh, there may be some people who see that as indicative of the success of their interventions. While perhaps researchers might say the costs of those success are incredibly high, uh, but I think that that you know that, that maybe you should bear in mind that uh, success and failure aren't necessarily aggregate categories, and that uh, one success in the eye for for or failure for some may actually, in the eyes of others, be a relative success. For instance, it might also help secure votes for populist right-wing anti-immigration parties to take a particular line on migration as well. So, uh, but I mean fundamentally, I I I think that you know, we we should take. The, the the kind of or try to understand more about the uh, motivations of those who are responsible for decision making. So I, in the book itself, I talk about opening the black box of governance, which is a something I stole from something as we often do, standing on the shoulders of giants. I, I took from somebody else's work in the study of international relations, but I think it's worthwhile trying to understand more about what it is that these actors, as I call them, I think they're doing. What is it they think that you know, what is it what is it they think they're doing and also how do they understand their roles before about the, the role of sort knowledge production in a sense on in establishing an actor as as a, a, a reliable or as part of this conversation on global governance i mean in the course of the 
of the so-called European refugee crisis, we saw some of the main international organizations investing massively into knowledge production on the crisis. We've seen all, a lot of states putting together large fund of research, for example, the European mm -hmm. Union, but also individual member states. So there has been very much a, um, a drive towards understanding better what was going on, but also in a sense using that knowledge to establish a position of, of power within this conversation on the global governance. Uh, that would be in sense, for example, the way that UNCR and IOM have, have, have established or reinforced that position within the conversation, uh, perhaps. In, uh, in your work, however, you also highlight the presence of other actors in this conversation on global governance, in particular sort of the regional actors. And uh, can you tell us about, you know, who are these other actors that contribute and in what way, what space do they have to, to, to participate? Yeah, it's, it's uh, well, I suppose one of the core arguments of the book is that uh, it's more likely that the global is kind of regionalized and that regions are globalized and i'll try and explain what that means it might help me get around to an answer to your question because i think there's an assumption that or sometimes an assumption that you know global migration governance itself creates a template to which states and regions adapt what i argue in the book is that it's more likely that regions and states will themselves adopt and adapt global standards in ways that are consistent with perhaps their own established ways of doing things so maybe as an example of that, when, I, when we're, uh, two regions that I look at in the book are Southeast Asia and South America, which are very different regions. First of all, Southeast Asia, what you have there, or what I looked at in particular, was an organization called the Association of Southeast Asian Nations with nine member states, where it's a consensus-based international organization where any decision requires unanimity. And where not all, uh, where, where there is a lot of diversity in terms of the political systems of the member states. So you have a grouping there where there is a very high level of sensitivity about cooperation on areas that impinge upon their sovereignty, a protection of their sovereignty, and an unwillingness to engage in any decisions that might require, say, majority voting or things like that. Also in Southeast Asia, what you see, and as, as I've tried to show in the book, is that migration itself is largely represented as a temporary phenomenon, that people are moving uh, for, well, they are temporary foreign workers, male and female, highly gendered processes of temporary foreign work, or they are displaced people in need of kind of some protection within the region before resettlement beyond the region. So in Southeast Asia, you see a very particular kind of regionalised response, which is deeply embedded within the the history and political systems of the countries that participate in the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, uh, which has led to significant limits on regional cooperation. But what I would also what I also show in the book is that there are other informal groupings which can actually be very important. So in Southeast Asia, there is something called the the Bali process. Well, its participation goes way beyond Southeast Asia. And in particular, it brings Australia much more directly into the Southeast Asian region. It co-chairs the Bali process with Indonesia. Uh, and what that is, well, that's framed around kind of irregular migration, trafficking and smuggling, but has become a very powerful frame for understanding displacement. And, and as many observers have pointed out, in a sense, has contributed almost to the criminalization of irregular movement, including those people who are displaced. So. You know, I mean, that's quite a long answer to your question. But what I'm the book is essentially arguing is these regional actors and their ways of doing things and their expectations about role 
can play very important, uh, very important role in in shaping regional responses and adapting global or international standards. So in, in South America, it's a very different story. In South America, uh, there was a, a well, what other what people have called a liberal tide in the began in the two thousands with a, a wave of left wing governments elected across the region, which took a very different stance on regional cooperation, which was defined against Europe and the United States, and involved a very progressive approach to migration based upon the rights of migrants, non criminalisation, uh, and I think has also informed the responses to Venezuelan displacement. Although kind of an interesting development in South America also, which needs to be borne in mind, is that the kind of ideological conflicts, I mean, that Brazil, with a obviously a notorious far-right president, has actually been quite accommodating of those displaced from Venezuela, because also because of the ideological left-right reasons as well. But yeah, but I, I suppose that might also show the importance of understanding more about the the distinctiveness of regions themselves and the way in which regions uh, kind of adapt, adopt, resist, uh, or he could even reject global standards. Uh, and so part of the argument of the book is we need to understand much more about the diversity of these regions, because in a certain sense, rather than, you know, the book says that rather than kind of global migration governance, which, you know, in terms of comprehensive global migration governance, seems to me uh, to be quite implausible in compre you know, comprehensive terms. What we see, what we are witnessing is uh, greater efforts at regional level cooperation. In, uh, you, you point out that in the global conference on, uh, on migration, the reference to region is, is frequent, but also another actor is mentioned a lot in is the business. The business sector is, is appears in multiple times in the document. And I was wondering how this sort of, the, the, who, are, who are them? And in what ways they interact uh, in different regions or is, if it's something that you have looked at? I think they, uh, business plays a hugely important role. And I think when I went into the research, I, it was a bit of a blind spot for me. I hadn't quite appreciated the extent to which the private sector was involved, which actually, looking back, was a very strange bias on my part because obviously the kind of organisation and mobilisation of migration itself mainly occurs through labour, in which the private sector is hugely important. Uh, the private sector tends to be quite well organised. Uh, and also, as I discovered during the research itself, uh, some of the major consultancy companies themselves are very involved in what they call global mobility practices because major companies move their people around the world. So it is a really important dimension of the debate about global migration. These are very important actors which are very well organised. Uh, but I, it's not, I suppose that it's not something that becomes central to the analysis in the book. They're, they're act, they are actors in the analysis that I do. I think it would be another study. Uh, it'd be a really interesting study to look at the role that business plays. And I probably was, as I say, a bit of a blind spot for me going into the research. I'd not, as I conceptualise it, I didn't quite appreciate it. Uh, and then as I was doing the research, it became more and more apparent how important uh, the private sector and business is and will be to any future development of global cooperation on migration. Just moving in a sense beyond the book, uh, in more recent time, uh, the data collection for the book uh, and the project uh, finished in uh, 2019. So that was just before the, the global pandemic, which had a huge impact on, on international mobility and migration. I was wondering, as, a, as an observer of uh, global governance on migration, how do you see this, um, the, the pandemic and the post-pandemic 
shaping or changing this dynamics of global governance at regional level that you have served in, in the book? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really important question, one I've been thinking about, because I, I suppose that I think maybe my perspective is it would tend to draw from some of the existing trends that were evident before the pandemic. So clearly there have been restrictions on travel, but there are already uh, greater efforts in some parts of the world to impose restrictions on travel. Uh, so I think that that is a trend that is likely to be exacerbated. And of course, well, one of the, I think one of the things that's going to be really important are post-pandemic inequalities. But of course, that is building on pre-pandemic inequalities. So we may see an exacerbation of inequalities that existed prior to the pandemic. And just a yeah, just I mean, it's a, it's a story which relates more to the to our centre here at the EUI. Is that you know, we 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 try and work with partners all over the world, and and as you think about how we continue to do that, well, I can see that our partnerships with people in uh, uh, relatively rich countries could maybe be continued because they're the countries that are getting access to vaccines and may then be able to travel, whereas some of our partners in uh, lower income countries may not have those same kind of advantages. So, I mean, that's from our, it focuses our minds, but obviously that's a wider issue. So, you know, in terms of, you know, so I think we may see an exacerbation of existing trends in terms of restrictions and also in terms of inequalities. One of the things that I would add as well, we do a lot, we do a lot of work here at the Migration Policy Centre on attitudes to migration. And, and we, well, we weren't, we weren't quite sure what effects the pandemic would have because you could expect to see a worsening of attitudes, you know, the targeting of migrants, scapegoating and attitudes certainly happened but actually one of the important underlying trends we found is over the last 20 years or so in Europe but also in North America is that attitudes to migration if anything have become more favorable over time that doesn't mean that you haven't had the eruptions of anti-immigration sentiment we used to which are often driven by issue salience and mobilizing sections of the electorate so in terms of effects on attitudes uh, we, we just recently published some work that looks at this where we would we, we see uh, you know relative stability in attitudes so uh, you know that's maybe a more you know sort of a, a more positive side to the story and also a steep decline in issue salience as well for kind of obvious reasons uh, migration is not a key concern in politics in many countries at the moment although that could mean that as, a, as I said at the start that doesn't mean that migrants aren't targeted or scapegoated they clearly have been but I think there's an interesting underlying story about attitudes to migration here, which builds on changes that have been evident for 20 years or so. One of the things that um, um, I think we, we have witnessed, maybe during the pandemic, has been an increased use of uh, digital technologies or the digitalization of immigration controls uh, and you know the, the use of um, this uh, the green pass or the way that's the, the idea that you can create using the apps to map where people are and really pin them when people move closer to each other. So potentially there is something there about the, the mainstreaming of this instrument, even more than they already used, they perhaps in this idea of digital borders, for example, is something that in the UK context is really at the, at the center of the debate. But I'm not sure that in other places it's the same. Well, it's, it's not something I've, I've studied closely, but I think it's a really interesting point because it's been mentioned to me quite a lot. And it's, I suppose maybe like you, it's something that comes more and more onto our agendas. So I just, yeah, it's, so it's not something I've looked at systematically, but 
speaking to people, you know, I suppose particularly what we will call the major destination countries, they increased uh, interest in the use of technology and put and and you know, I've sat with kind of relatively senior officials in interior ministries across the world while they've explained to me how the airport of the future will work and how the privileged traveler will move through kind of seamlessly through the airport while those less privileged will be directed towards extensive scrutiny and controls and whether you saw that as utopian or dystopian i mean it was but it was kind of interesting to hear it and i think that that you know that so it's maybe like the as we were just discussing that prior to the pandemic there was already a lot of interest in these kind of things and post pandemic perhaps will accelerate and and kind of and as and around this of course you've got an industry this is big business so there is a very big uh, industrial interest at stake business interest at stake in this kind of technology and these people are quite well organized and also in terms of global governance there's a lot of informal interaction and sharing of ideas and information. So we might assume that global governance is something that happens in the UN, but actually it happens in all kinds of different places, formally and very importantly, informally as well. I came across something called this group of five, which is Australia, New Zealand, Canada, United States and the UK. And they meet quite often. They share ideas and information. Uh, but also it's not, it's not just having a formal meeting because these people get to know each other they can phone each other so they you know that they, they, uh, they may have chats in the bar and things like that which become almost like part of these processes of, of global governance and contribute to the sharing of ideas and information i think concerns about or interest in technology uh, and and what people might see technological solutions has become maybe has focused people's minds the pandemic and uh, and for us as researchers, we should be motivated to consider what kind of future this entails in terms of rights and freedoms. I mean, this is why I was partly asking the question on the business, the role of uh, the private sector, because on one end, obviously, they have the interest in the, the global mobility of, yeah. uh, of skills, but there is also, obviously, as you point out, uh, a, a lot of money involved. So the, if they can sit at the table of the global governance, the, I'm sure that also some of those uh, companies that have interest in the, in the digital bordering, they will make their position hurt. Um, and I think in the book you use the concept, uh, talking about this role of the informal discussion of the global governance repertoires, you know, the sense of the circulation of these ideas, of this model of intervention, which is non-linear, but they, mm. they, they spread among the, the various actors. Yeah, because I think that's a, yeah, it's because it, I mean, I suppose the picture is is I suppose complex across regions, and I, I suppose part of the task of the book is try is to try to make sense of it uh, and organise it. And yeah, but I think with business, uh, I think there's a kind of a, a very acute attention to where power lies, and in the global system, power still tends to lie with particular states. Mm. Uh, and so a lot of the interest in business is, is locating, uh, locating the power and mobilizing ways it might try to influence it. So in some places, the regions are not perhaps the most relevant forum for exerting pressure and influence, whereas in you know, the European Union, there are some countries that are particularly important and the EU itself is playing more of a role. 
A final question, this time not, not linked to the book, but more as a, your role as a director of the Migration Policy Center at uh, the European Institute in Florence. Um, what do you see as, um, a, a, as the, you know, the future for immigration studies? You know, what's the, what are the key areas that we should work on uh, as a researcher on migration or the gaps, current gaps? Yeah. We, we already, in a sense, know what the agendas are around uh, controls, restrictions, mobility and movements. Those kind of te those tensions existed pre-pandemic and maybe will be exacerbated post-pandemic. The inequalities existed pre-pandemic because they're one of the key drivers of, of migration itself, the fundamental structural inequalities in the global system and are likely to be exacerbated post-pandemic. So for researchers, they, they're these those fundamental concerns about rights, freedoms, and how they might manifest in differential access to mobility, and also in inequality, will, if anything, be more important. But I also think one, but what we, and again, we've already been doing this, it's not only what we research, but how we research and who we research with. And I think that, uh, you know, often our priorities might be, and, you know, for obvious reasons, you get directed towards funding but that tends to direct you in particular ways into particular ways of working and working with particular partners uh, and one thing that we want to do here because we're a very collaborative center we want to work with other groups other centers other people but we also want to think about how we broaden our network of partners because we're going to you know, and, and we we already do this through some of our work but if, if we're going to think seriously about uh that kind of post-pandemic world we need to do so in a way that uh, is based on a broader base of cooperation. So how do we then also think about how we take responsibility ourselves for uh, perhaps broadening the range of participation in this in this field of research and, and ourselves learning much more systematically about what goes on in other parts of the world and being uh, more uh, of, of, of thinking more deeply about how we cooperate. So I think that's also something that we're we're concerned to do, but we, we can only do it through working together because migration studies is a bit of a it's it's not a, a massive field of research, and uh, but we need to I think and I think this kind of exercise is going on thinking much more about how this kind of organisational venue of migration studies where people can get together can also be much more uh, open to greater participation. Thank you very much, Andrew. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for continuing Thanks. the conversation with Iris.